When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On top of breaking news, after more than three decades, three local families find closure in their loved ones' cold case homicides. Alan Wilmer Sr. died several years ago, but tonight he's accused of killing two people in Isla White County and another person in Hampton. The duo found shot to death in Isla White was part of the commonly phrased Colonial Parkway murders. Angelique Arantok has the story. The suspect accused of carrying out the killings is Alan Wilmer Sr. of the Northern Neck. Because he was never in the system, he was never in the CODIS database, there was no hit. So we had a common suspect, he just had not been identified. It was this summer when investigators say DNA evidence linked Wilmer to the victims. According to Virginia State Police, Wilmer is responsible for the death of 29-year-old Teresa Terry Howell after she disappeared in Hampton in 1989. Wilmer is also accused of shooting and killing 20-year-old David Nobling and 14-year-old Robin Edwards in Isle of Wight County in 1987. The duo became known as victims in a series of double homicides coined as the Colonial Parkway murders. Police agency spokespeople read statements from the victims' families. Now we have a sense of relief and justice knowing that he can no longer victimize another. While we are grateful for the closure that has been provided, nothing will bring Terry back. The void left by her absence over the years is inexpressible. Officials say Wilmer died at 63 years old in 2017 at his Lancaster County home. At this time, he isn't linked to any other unsolved crimes. Let us know if you knew him, how you knew him, what encounters you had, so we can build that timeline and find out if, in fact, there are other victims out there. Angelique Arantalk, 13 News Now. Investigators say Alan Wilmer Sr. had a 1966 blue Dodge Fargo pickup and a fishing boat named Denny Wade. If you know anything about him, dial 1-800-CALL-FBI or go online at tips.fbi.gov. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And today I'm joined by two very special guests who I've interviewed numerous times, actually, and I've been on your podcast too, Mind Over Murder. I'm really happy to be talking again to Bill and Kristen. You're going to introduce yourselves. And my listeners will know that we last spoke in 2023, but we also spoke on Real Crime Profile in 2016. And I said in 2023 that I hope next time we speak, it's regarding an update. So I'm really happy to welcome you back. So please introduce yourselves. I do remember you saying that. That's so funny. And here we are. I'm Bill Thomas. I'm the brother of Kathy Thomas, who together with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, are the first two victims in the Colonial Parkway murders in Virginia. And I'm also the co-host of the Mind Over Murder podcast with my podcast partner, Kristen Dilley. And I'm Kristen Dilley. I am co-host of Mind Over Murder, along with my partner in true crime, Bill Thomas. I am also a teacher, a writer, and a victim's advocate. Welcome back to Crime Analyst. I Thank worry, you. when Kristen says we're partners in true crime, I worry that people think we're criminals as opposed to <laughs> <laughs> something as else. Advocates, as advocates and making sure the correct information <laughs> goes out there. But yes, that could be a point of confusion. So I'm glad you clarified that. And of course, you've both got many hyphens. You both do a lot of things and you've got the Facebook page that you manage and monitor for the Colonial Parkways murders. We've spoken extensively over the years 
about the case. And of course, we've talked about the fact that we're not really that comfortable with the term the colonial parkway murders, because we always suspected it wasn't just that geographic area. And I listened back to our episodes, our three-part episodes, actually, that dropped last year. And yes, we did say, or I said very specifically, I hope there's going to be an update in the case soon, because we talked about the passage of time and how tough that was as each month and each year clicks by. And finally, we've had an update. And I couldn't believe that there was this press conference on January the 8th, on Monday, and I got notification there was going to be a presser at 1.30pm ET, and I was really interested to know what was going to be said. So I scrambled and I cancelled what I was doing and I watched and I messaged you, Bill, and got nothing back. And I thought, well, that's odd, but okay, he's probably busy. So I carried on watching and I found it a little bit confusing, I have to say, and I'll explain a bit more why I felt confused. I know you did too, but perhaps start off with, Bill, you talk first of all just about the press conference, if if you can, and what you knew. I know you knew it was coming, but you didn't necessarily know what was going to be said. And can you just explain a little bit of the detail of, of that impact for you, knowing that there was something coming and what happened? Sure. Full disclosure, Kristen Dilley and I knew several months before the press conference from media contacts that there was going to be a significant announcement in the Colonial Parkway murders and that a man named Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. had been linked via DNA to, we knew it was one of the double homicides in the Colonial Parkway murders. We actually didn't know which one, although our media contacts were very specific. It was not Thomas Dowski is what they said. So it wasn't my sister, Kathy, and her girlfriend, Rebecca. And we were a little confused, Kristen and I, because they said linked to two. Now, this is a series of murders of four young couples. So when we say linked to two, did that mean linked to two pairs or one pair? Further, they told us that this is interesting. They were unspecific about which Colonial Parkway murders they were referencing. But these media contacts said that a woman named Teresa Lynn Howell, age 29, who had been murdered in Hampton, Virginia in 1989, was also linked via DNA. So some parts of what they told us was clear and other parts were not clear. And Kristen and I brainstormed a lot about, we know it's not Thomas Dowski. They're specific about that. Does two mean two pair or one pair? And that didn't become clear until Monday, January 8th. My phone blew up on Sunday night because people reached out to me to let us know that there'd been a raid. I'm going to talk like a civilian here. I'm not a cop. A raid by FBI and Virginia State Police officers at a home owned by this man, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. And I was told actually other Wilmer family homes. So... That was Sunday night. Monday, Kristen got word that this press conference had been set up. Now, we received no invitation and no notice regarding a press conference, which is very odd. And I received a text early Monday morning from our FBI agent, whom I've known for a decade. She handles the uh, investigation into Kathy and Becky's murder, as well as the disappearance of Keith Call and Cassandra Haley. Both those cases, because they happened inside a national park, are FBI cases. The other parts of the Colonial Parkway murders are handled by the Virginia State Police because they happened outside the national park. So I got a text Monday morning, very early, saying that my agent would like to speak to me at 1.30 p.m. This is extremely unusual. She's been handling our case for over a decade. We speak frequently. Our normal MO is she'll text me and say, can we talk? And I'll do my absolute best to stop doing whatever I'm doing and call her back. And so typically she'll text me and I'll try to call her within five minutes if I can. This has not always gone over well with my partner, Pamela. I've interrupted dinners and movies and fun television shows and all kinds of stuff. 
to get back with our agent, but she's really important to me. And she's working on something that's very important to my family. So I thought it was really weird to be asked at 7.30 a.m. if I could be available to speak to her at 1.30 p.m. We've never scheduled a conversation six hours in advance. So I found that very odd. And then Kristen came back to me that Monday morning and she said, okay, word is they're doing a press conference. And then she was more specific, was supposed to be at 1.30 p.m. And then Kristen said, our media sources are telling us they're not saying this has anything to do with the Colonial Parkway murders. So it, the whole thing was very odd. I still find it odd that the FBI agent in question gave me a two-hour briefing from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. So now when I think back on it, it feels like they wanted to tie me up so that I wasn't able to watch the press conference. And I think most importantly, I wasn't able to respond to it in real time. Because sometimes, you know, you see if something very important is happening like this, sometimes people will even live tweet or maybe offer a few comments. You did, even while you, I think you were watching the press conference and you were among the people who were texting me, you know, during my conversation with the FBI agent, which was very valuable. Don't misunderstand me. But I thought this was odd. I had even written back to our agent and said, is your intention, now that I knew about the press conference, is your intention that we're going to watch the press conference together at 1.30 p.m.? Because that was she was very specific. And the press conference started right at 1.30. And she wrote back mid-morning in response. She said, no. And I thought, well, this is really odd. So that set up a very odd press conference to start with. They seem to go out of their way to not refer to the murder of Robin Edwards and David Knobling, one of the Colonial Parkway murders, which was solved. And we're super excited to hear this news and very excited for the families. And the murder of Teresa Howell, the case we were less familiar with. And they started referring to Robin Edwards and David Knobling's now solved murder as the Isle of White murders. And being frank, nobody ever called that case by that name. It is an Isle of White County. No one ever called it that. It's part of the Colonial Parkway murders. And then when a question came up from a longtime reporter in the market, Andy Fox, he asked, or may we ask, when Alan Wade Wilmer Sr first became a suspect in the Colonial Parkway murders. And they said no. And then he asked the question again at a later point in the press conference. And they said no again. And I said, what's going on here? I didn't see the press conference till 10 o'clock that night because my phone exploded, as you might imagine. But it felt like they were playing hide the ball during the press conference. Yes, I mean, I, I'm shocked to hear, Bill, that your time was monopolized at that very specific timing when there was going to be a press conference that was national and international. People were paying attention to it. And I remember seeing it. It was titled Major Updates, Cold Case Homicides, and not very much was given away about the detail. And of course, in the actual presser itself, as you mentioned, Isle of Wight murders, it was very confusing. I was tweeting, somewhat confusing presser, but a suspect has been identified. Now, the suspect being identified is great news, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. And I think we all share in the excitement about that because you've been asked, well, you've been waiting for so long for progress on these cases. You've been pushing and pushing for such a long time now. So that is good news, but I am very disappointed about how you've been treated. And I have to say that. I know you understand that I have said this to you before, but I want it clear to my listeners as well that this is not good advocacy. This is not a good way to interact with families, that monopolizing their time at the point when they need to know this information for themselves, but also of what other people are hearing so that you can psychologically prepare yourself and then you can answer questions because you have been the voice person, not just for your own family and for Kathy, but for all the other families. So you're, you've been a very important part of this whole case and ensuring that it's been kept very much in the public 
and media spotlight because cold cases can just disappear and people may not remember them and families have to keep advocating. And I know from talking to you, it's exhausting, but I do just want to say that I'm very disappointed that your time was monopolised, no doubt intentionally, to prevent you from talking out. And that is not okay. And so you were playing catch up when you should have been at the the forefront of it. And I, I thought the press conference was very cagey and I wondered what was going on behind the scenes, particularly that it wasn't a senior officer managing and facilitating it. It was a press officer. And that gave me pause for, well, I raised an eyebrow at that. And I think that it was a very strange move but perhaps things, it, it was intentional again, because certain questions were answered in a way that it probably would have come across very poorly if it were a senior police officer. And maybe they could have been accused of lying down the line. I think that particularly when they talked about the fact were the press asking, can you say how he came in? To you as a suspect, no. And that was shut down. Well, this isn't a live investigation in the sense that he is still alive and it's a manhunt. Nobody else is at risk at this stage. He is deceased. So I thought that that was strange. And then when they said, well, they could never have taken his DNA when he was alive because he wasn't a convicted felon. He'd never been convicted for anything, which is not accurate. Well, a civilian saying that versus a police officer a police officer could not say that because it's not true. So anyway, it just raised a load of question marks for me. And, and I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I also think that, I mean, the Teresa Howe case is interesting. The 1989, 29-year-old woman who had been out at the Zodiac Club. And at 2.30 in the morning, she was walking near to the club and she disappeared. And I hadn't heard about this case before. So I wanted to ask both of you whether you had... And second to that, that it has been reported on as a murder, but actually it was a rape, strangulation and murder. And so when we analyse the cases and we think to Kathy and Becky and uh, Robin Edwards, when we think about Lolly Winans and Julie Williams, other cases, and we're thinking about linkage, that becomes very important to know that she was abducted, raped, strangled and murdered. Absolutely horrific behaviours was she stalked? So you have to profile each of these cases because we know that he did commit rape, strangulation and murder. And that was in 1989. So my question immediately was, how many other victims have we got? Because if we timeline him backwards, and of course, the point of the presser was to timeline him, to ask an appeal to the public to help with timelining him, because the FBI and the Virginia State Police, they've got gaps in the timeline. And I was working backwards in terms of his age. He was deceased in 2017, where he was age 63. So that would have put him at 33 years old in 1987. So when he killed David Nobling and when he raped Robin Edwards. So 33 then, what else did he do before and what else did he do after? And that's really what they wanted information about. But it was very confusing. And the problem is... If people like us are confused listening and watching, well, how does that then come across to other people who don't know the case at all? And does that impact on timelining him? And I believe that it did. And I felt that that was all a distraction, that we want to make sure people do put the right information in to, to timeline this individual. And of course, the right offences are attributed to him. And there's a lot to unpack with him, isn't there? So I don't know, Kristen, if you want to go first or Bill, you want to react because we've got so much to discuss to unpack who he was, his behaviour, his description and other potential offences. You know, it's interesting, Laura, we have had a lot of people, a lot of people writing to Bill, to the Colonial Parkway murders page, to the Mind Over Murder page, providing information about places where they knew Alan Wilmer Sr. from. And that is great. We are so glad to have this information, but there is so much of it that for two humble podcasters who also have day jobs, this is a little hard for us to do to try to put together a timeline, which is why we're encouraging everybody who has information, please like send it to the FBI, send it to the VSP. We're not investigators and we're not equipped for this. But just in the last couple of days, doing my own very poor 
non-law enforcement trained attempt to write a timeline for this guy, I can see where there might be another couple of, I call them Colonial Parkway adjacent cases that he might be good for. And so that is something that I want to spend a little bit more time looking into. And let's not even get into the number of cases that he may have been involved with after 1989, as you said. I think you said it on RCP. But you don't just start doing this at age 33. I'm sure that there are precursor crimes out there. And so I hope that they are timelining him back as far as they possibly can. But just in the little bit of research that I've been able to do, I think that in addition to the other Colonial Parkway murders cases, Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski, Robin Edwards and David Noblain, Keith Collin, Cassandra Haley, and Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, and now the addition of Teresa Howell. So there are two cases in particular, and we've always uh, classified them as Parkway adjacent because they seemed similar to the MO that you saw in the Colonial Parkway murders. But the place where we always got hung up is the fact that these were both single victims as opposed to couples. And that is the December 4th, 1987 disappearance of Brian Pettinger and the March 9th, 1988 disappearance of Laurie Ann Powell. Both Brian Pettinger and Laurie Ann Powell worked at a company called Liberty Security, which is another interesting point of conversation. Mm -hmm. But looking at a waterman like Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., both of these young people were brutally stabbed and their bodies were dumped into the James River. And as Kristen said, we never thought of them as part of the Colonial Parkway murders, but they seemed so close in time mm -hmm. and place that we could never put them aside. Exactly. If you take a look at the timeline for the Colonial Parkway murders case, you have Thomas Dowski in October 1986, followed by Edwards Nobling in September of 1987, and then Call Haley, April of 1988. In between Robin and David at Ragged Island, which we now know Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. is responsible for, you have Brian Pettinger from 1987 and Lorianne Powell from 1988. It kind of rounds out the narrative is the best way that I'm thinking of it right now. The two cases there are bracketed by two Colonial Parkway murders cases, and I don't think that's something that we can ignore. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Yes, I think that's interesting that you bring those two cases up. And I think we did discuss them in our previous three-part discussion. So I'll say to my listeners, go back and listen to our three-part conversation that dropped last year. But now we've got new information about this individual, things become a lot more tangible. And looking for links, looking for were there any arguments, disputes, did they know each other, for example, because this seems to feel so local to me. This was an individual, and you know, we will describe Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. He does have children and he was married. And of course, I have questions about domestic violence, coercive control because he was married. And I would love to hear from his ex-wife or any ex-girlfriends about him because I would expect to hear about a lot of abuse. But when thinking about what he's doing outside the home, well, we know that he is someone, and when we talked about Kathy and Becky, you'll recall we talked about somebody being comfortable in that area. We talked about someone spending time at the crime scene. He tried to 
let's just talk about it as if it's not Wilma right now, Wilma Senior. Let's just talk about what we said originally, which was it's someone who spent time at the scene. It's somebody who spent time with both of them. He strangled them, but he also cut their throats. And these were two very physically active women. And we felt that he had somehow surprised them. The window had been rolled down. Kathy's wallet was open and out of the glove box. So we talked about, was it somebody who had knocked on the window and there she's trying to show ID? We talked about how they were killed, but also that the car, someone had tried to push it into the water but set fire to it before using diesel. Now, why I'm saying these particular points was their throats, and sorry, Bill and, and Kristen, and you know the detail of this, but it, and it is horrific. Well, to do that sort of act, it would need a sharp knife. And actually there was comment by the FBI at the time, as you said, Bill, it's an F, it was an FBI case from the start, but that a very sharp curved knife had been used and also fishing cord, as well as the fact that diesel fuel was used, which is often what obviously fuels boats. So why that's important is because that was all in the original FBI profile. And what we know about Wilma Senior was that he was a fisherman, a waterman. He was spent a lot of his time yeah, on the water and he was also a hunter. He had weapons and he was a very good shot, but he also had a tree service business, tree surgeon. So these sorts of things are absolutely critical for me when I think about the behaviour and what's gone on and everything about that. Well, Wilma Senior ticks those boxes in terms of his behaviour and his comfortability in those areas. One of the things we're hearing from retired investigators is that Wilmer was incredibly comfortable in these woods, almost like what we would call a survivalist these days. This is a guy who could hunt and fish. He won championships as a uh, shooting bow and arrow. He could spend days in the woods by himself and hunting and surviving, living off the land. And they said essentially disappearing into the ground almost when he wanted to. And there was a story that was told to me over the weekend, and a lot of people are reaching out to us, as Kristen said. This investigator was saying, we were out there in the cold, in the middle of the winter, freezing our buns off. And this guy's out there, doesn't seem to have a care in the world. He was extremely comfortable in these wild places. And of course, he knows the water backwards and forwards. He's often living on the boat, according to the FBI and the Virginia State Police. So he's living on his 32-foot boat with Denny Wade. He's away from his family. They're two hours and 15 minutes away. So he's pretty much on his own for, they think, weeks or months at a time. So this guy is kind of a master of slipping in and slipping out of these places on water and land. Really important information. We know he had a truck on land too, which we'll talk about because this is an appeal for information. And so the truck is a very important vehicle, a blue... Well, Bill, you explain a bit more about the truck because there are some very detailed specifics or Kristen, whichever one wants to go on the truck. Well, the truck is very specific. It's basically a one of a kind. The FBI was looking for this truck from the first few days of the Call Haley disappearance because it was seen on the Colonial Parkway. It's really distinctive. It's a 1966 truck. So it was an antique even in 88. It's a Dodge Fargo flat side truck. It's got writing quite faded on the doors, a business name, and this distinctive blue-green color. And the most distinctive feature of all, it's got knobby tires and it's kind of up high. It's got this very large, elaborate equipment on the back. To a layperson, it might look like a tow truck setup almost. But what it is, is they call them tongs. These are the winches and associated equipment that are used for hauling crab pods and pulling oysters. So this truck is extremely distinctive. And the FBI was looking for this truck from day one, literally of the disappearance of Keith Call and Cassandra Haley. They got lucky in that a radio operator who was 
responsible for the maintenance of the radios for all of the FBI agents who were working out of a hotel on the Colonial Parkway used as their command post. They were throwing agents at this disappearance because at this point they had two very similar murders having already taken place. And now they had a couple disappearing on the Colonial Parkway. So the truck is found a few days later because a sharp-eyed radio maintenance guy radios into headquarters. Remember, this is before the internet, before cell phones. He radios in and says, guys, the truck you're looking for, I'm driving next to it on the highway. And he described the truck to them. They said, that's the one. It's really only, you know, it's that unique. And he saw the license plate, which was also very distinctive. It had vanity plates, E-M-R-A-W. R -A -W. So they knew they had, you know, the right guy in the right truck. Yes, the truck is very distinctive. And I'll put pictures up on social media so that people can see. Um, it's a truck that had come up a number of times because couples had reported the driver of the truck along the Colonial Parkways for stopping the guy getting out, knocking on couples' windows as they were kissing or making out. And one particular couple who he obviously thought was two women because the guy had long hair, he knocked on the window and he said, are you having fun, girls? And when the guy turned around, he then crept off. I mean, pretty creepy stuff. And that was reported. So the truck was important because it was also seen at the same site where Cassandra Haley and Keith Cole were last seen. So you had an eyewitness who also put that truck there. Now, the truck and the driver had been identified and the driver, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., was a prime suspect in the disappearance and murders of Keith Cole and Cassandra Haley. And for me, I found this staggering. I learned about that and I did wonder about it, which was what I was thinking when I saw the KG press conference. And then I saw Blaine Pardot had written about this in his co-authored book, but he had also blogged about it, saying he had watched the press conference too. And that this guy, he couldn't believe when the truck was put up because this guy was a prime suspect at the time. And he actually spoke with the investigating officer at the time. He interviewed him. And it was believed that he was a very good suspect. And why he was such a good suspect was within days, he was seen on his driveway cleaning out the truck, spray painting it, vacuuming it. And because of these calls about his behaviour. And so a warrant was obtained because of his behaviour. And the trailer was searched, his trailer. And I believe he may have been living with his brother at the time as well, Keith Wilmer. And we'll we're, we're come back to Keith Wilmer. So they searched the trailer and they found weapons, handcuffs, pornography, as well as a witness putting him at the scene, as well as his behaviour. I mean, for me, this is just absolutely critical information that would absolutely corroborate him being prime suspect. And you would have thought that he would have been put under surveillance for a period of time. But what the FBI did do, Joe Wolfinger said that they brought in the best polygrapher, lie detector agent that they had who had worked organised crime and serious at organised crime. And apparently he passed the lie detector test. So for all intents and purposes, they eliminated him, which I found that staggering reading the blog from Blaine Pardot, and then the FBI confirmed after his blog that that was accurate. But at no point was that clear in the press conference that he'd previously been a prime suspect. I found that. It, now things started to make sense. And I think the FBI agent, was it, was it Wells, had said, you better be right about this. And he threw in an expletive, the F-bomb, mm -hmm. because he felt that he was the prime suspect. And he couldn't shake that. Now, that's quite important as well, that the FBI agent did believe he was still the prime suspect, even though he had passed the lie detector test. And they put too much faith in that, unfortunately. And I have no idea why they didn't conduct surveillance after that. A couple of things are worth noting too. That driveway story, as we called it in my family, my father Joe Thomas, who passed away a couple of years ago at age 90, 
he told me that story in 1988 because he had heard it directly from Robert Meadows, Bob Meadows, who was one of the FBI agents working the case, who spoke to my father frequently. And I was almost 30 years old when Kathy died. I was a month shy of my 30th birthday. I was very upset, of course, about what had happened to Kathy. And of all of our family, I was the one that was always asking my dad, who was our liaison to the FBI, what have they told you lately? And sometimes we would quietly try to find a corner of the house where my mom couldn't hear us because this was really upsetting for her and the rest of the family. So my dad and I would talk very quietly or I would call him from work and at his job at the college, he was an assistant dean, he'd find a few minutes and he'd tell me what they told me. So this driveway story that Blaine Pardo was kind enough to include in his book, A Special Kind of Evil, I had heard that story in detail back in 88. And then a few years ago, when we did the Colonial Parkway Murders television series, The Lover's Lane Murders, we interviewed Irv Wells, who was the special agent in charge. He was, in, he was the boss of all of the agents. I had three or four hours with him twice because we had to shoot the interviews two different times. I sat with him in his uh, living room in Virginia Beach. He's since passed away. And retired special agent in charge, Wells, told me the driveway story again and about how they gave him a lie detector test and they, they kind of let him go. Now, we know that that is now the person that we have identified as Wilmer, I didn't know the suspect's name back then. And Wells actually didn't remember his name at the time he told me the story a couple of years ago, but it was greatly specific. Yes, I'm seeing actually from my notes, Bill, you're right. Special Agent Wells couldn't remember the name of the fisherman, only the Reg E.M. Raw. So it clearly was, he clearly thought that this guy was a good prime suspect. And it baffles me as to why a lie detector test would be used. I mean, it really is about supporting things, not it being the primary tool that's used. So for me, that obviously, I mean, he was known and it makes me wonder how many other things he was known for. And perhaps the local community felt that they couldn't say things. Perhaps they were in fear of Wilma Senior and the family. And I do also know from a lot of my work, and I've spoken to both of you about this before, that often when women report stalking, obscene phone calls, peeping, rape, domestic abuse, they're just not treated seriously. And they're not believed, they're not taken seriously. And so for the perpetrators who commit it, it just green lights them and it allows them to carry on. And so I do wonder about that. It must have greenlit him. It must have empowered him. He came within a whisker of being arrested. And yet what I find really bizarre, and you know, I wanted to ask you about this case, the case of Mary Harding. One of my um, Twitter followers sent me an article that outlined Mary Harding's abduction, rape and murder in 1985 and that she lived in Lancaster County. And I read with interest about her case that there's a lot to it in that she was married, she had two children, she had a, a four-year-old boy, Ray, and also a one-year-old, and she just went missing from her home. And as I always say, women don't just disappear into thin air. Her, someone knocked on the door the next day and the children hadn't been taken to the babysitter's, the little boy said, mama's, mama's gone. And looking outside, two flip-flops were found in different places. And so there was a large search for Mary. She was 24 and she was a very well-liked person in the community. Her husband was a fisherman. He was away and she just disappeared. Well, she was found four days later, face down. Her body was badly decomposed. She was naked she had slashes on her back, which now we know were from a propeller, but she had been weighed down in, in the water with a chain and a cinder block. So whoever did this really did not want her to be found. 
A truck was seen in her driveway the night before. An eyewitness talked about a truck being in the driveway. Also, one of the investigators saw the dogwood tree that was outside her bedroom window had been climbed multiple times, and it was believed that someone was stalking her. And she worked at the Bank of Lancaster, and one of her colleagues had received obscene phone calls, and the person making those obscene phone calls was believed to be Keith Wilmer, the brother of Alan Wilmer Sr. So that was really interesting to discover, because when I talked to Catherine Miles some time ago, for she'd written the book Trailed, and I know you've spoken with her, Catherine talked about a Keith Wilmer and Deirdre Enright's involvement in a certain case. Well, it, it turns out that this was the case. So now I feel like I've gone full circle, but I'll explain a little bit more because Keith Wilmer was also believed to have made obscene phone calls to a sheriff's dispatcher, a female sheriff's dispatcher. She believed she recognised his voice and he was threatening to rape her. Now, he did become a suspect in the abduction, rape and murder of Mary Harding. Him and there were two brothers, the Dawson brothers, while Richard Dawson was also a suspect because his wife had apparently applied for a babysitting job with Mary and Mary had turned her down. And there was some kind of ruckus at the bank and it involved Dawson and Mary had her name on a badge and it was believed that he may well have taken issue with her. However, the detective, Detective David Riley, eliminated them both from Mary's case. Now, I don't know the reasons of how they were eliminated, but they were, and another suspect came into the frame, and that suspect was someone called Emerson Stevens. And he ended up being arrested and convicted for Mary's murder. Now, that's where Deirdre Emright got involved. He ended up serving 31 years, and witnesses were bullied and coerced and bullied into giving false testimony. I was horrified to read that by Detective David Riley. It's all in this very long article, and I'll post the link on, on the show notes. But this particular detective had a history. There was another case where he had done this too, and it was a female, Monroe, who had been convicted, and she ended up having her conviction overturned. So it made me feel there's something very murky in the water. If a prosecutor and a detective are prepared to do that, to have to bully and coerce people to give false testimony, to lock up the wrong person. Well, again, all that does is allow the real killer to carry on their offending behaviour. So I firstly wanted to ask you, given that Mary's case, I mean, for me, I'll make it very plain. It's evident that she was stalked. It's evident that there was peeping. She was abducted from her home where she had two children. She was strangled, raped and murdered. Had Mary's case come across your desk, as it were, before? And the second part for me is it really seems that this could well have been either one of the brothers or two of the brothers together because where her body was found in the river, it was very close to the trailer that they had where both the brothers were living. So I just wonder, we know that it wasn't Emerson Stevens who went to prison for 31 years. His life was absolutely destroyed and it was just horrific reading about him losing his family. He had children, his wife, his whole life. I mean, fortunately now he and his wife have been reunited, but for 31 years he went to prison. For me, this looks like it could be one of the Wilmers, if not two of them. And I'm talking about Alan Wade. Wilmer Senior and Keith Wilmer. Thoughts? I definitely think that the Mary Harding case needs a second look because it does sound as if it could have been one or both of the brothers. We were familiar with Mary Harding's case from a media source who brought it to us a couple of months in advance of this presser on January and said, you should definitely take a look at this piece here. Murder on the Rappahannock, which is very good, very long and in-depth, very detailed. And uh, we were told, you know, take a look at this case, see what you think. And we had a lot of the same concerns as you did, Laura. I think it is entirely possible that either one or both brothers is involved in the murder of Mary Harding. And I certainly hope that there's going to be a second look a good hard look taken at this case with regards to whether or not Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. has something to do with it. 
it's also become clear now that Mary Kieser Harding and many people that are contacting us up in the Lancaster area, for some reason are referring to her by all three names. So that may just be the way things are done in Lancaster County, but I, it was very striking. At first, when they were talking about Mary Kieser Harding and people said it quickly, I was like, is this the Mary Harding case we're talking about? And they are one and the same. Keith Wilmer's wife, Brenda Pittman Wilmer, also worked at the bank, we are now becoming aware, with Mary Harding. So there's something that's bubbling up here that we're beginning to hear about of the possibility of a discussion between Mary Kayser Harding and Mrs. Wilmer, Brenda Pittman, that might involve something that was so upsetting that one or both of the Wilmer brothers killed Mary Harding to keep her quiet. It's a possibility. People are killed for a, a lot less, but I would imagine with both brothers, there would be a lot of domestic abuse and coercive control. And that if you, based on what I'm learning about their psychopathology, and that if you cross them or upset them, there would be repercussions. And I would expect that people in the local community were somewhat fearful of them. I mean, it sounds like there's good reason to be. Hunters, these were people who spent a lot of time with weapons. They clearly had no real respect for the law or for women. And the level of misogyny and hatred towards women, I feel certainly Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. would have shown. And when looking at Kathy's murder, Becky's murder, when thinking about Robin Edwards, who was 14, we know that she was raped, we know that she was sodomized. This points again to extreme hatred. These are power and control related crimes. And I want to, again, just make that clear because I have heard people talk about them as being crimes of passion or passionate crimes. These, this is not about that. This is about misogyny and hatred. And this is about some form of revenge being eked out on targeted and unsuspecting victims, some of them couples, but we now know that not all of them were couples. And that's, again, what you would expect. You would expect to see that people would be singled out on their own as well as couples. And it takes a certain psychology to go after two people together, to have the confidence to be able to control them. Well, well we, we know that when their trailer was searched, there was weapons, handcuffs. Why would they need handcuffs? Using handcuffs means you control one of them and it means that you can get the other one to behave in a certain way. And the pornography as well, the fantasy-related behaviour. But I just feel that there will be many other offences and many other women and potentially men who have been targeted because they've had altercations or some kind of dispute. So revenge has then been meted out on them and people don't link them. Law enforcement don't link them because they don't think they're a similar type of behaviour. But it sounds to me like the FBI actually did quite a lot more than what I understood. Certainly in terms of their profile, it was accurate for Kathy and Becky. I, I feel learning some of those key points and about Special Agent Wells and that he was not pro-eliminating Wilmer Sr. He was actually against it and he made it very clear and he went on record. Well, thank God he did go on record and thank goodness Blaine Pardot wrote about it with his daughter, Victoria. Thank goodness he did that. And thank goodness, Bill, you did a follow-up interview with him because I suspect we would never even know about this connection had that not have happened. The handcuffs, by the way, may be significant. And this is the kind of thing that breaks my heart to learn some of these additional details all these years later. The FBI believes handcuffs were likely used in Kathy and Becky's murder. Yes, they were restrained with rope, but the burns on their wrists actually might indicate that he brought handcuffs with him, whoever their offender was, used the handcuffs to restrain them and then took the handcuffs away. He had a murder kit and this is someone who came in prepared to kill. And many of the tools used in Kathy and Becky's murder are also the tools of a waterman. And he does match 
the profile precisely in terms of what they were looking for. I'm not certain this man is responsible for Kathy and Becky's death, but he's already been linked to two of the four double homicides in the Colonial Parkway murders. And it is not a big stretch to begin to realize that in incident number four, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer up at this hunt club off Interstate 64, the way their bodies were treated, that also kind of indicates someone with a high degree of comfort in the woods. And it's possible that Wilmer may have hunted at this club either illegally or as a guest, but this was a place that hunters went to hunt wild game. Yeah. So these things start to make a bit more sense. So we know about the distinctive truck that he had. He had a boat and the boat's important as well. It was a custom made boat called the Denny Wade. So I'll put pictures of the boat up, but he spent a lot of time on his boat. He spent a lot of time in the trees. He was a fisherman and he was a hunter. I mean, these are all for me, just the biggest red flags just red flag after red flag after red flag. So if you knew him or if you ever came across him, this is what law enforcement want to understand. They want to piece together the timeline of what he was doing. If you were approached by him, if he made you feel uncomfortable, if either of the Wilmer brothers made you feel uncomfortable, maybe you reported it and nothing happened. So I'm requesting and asking, please re-report it. And there are specific emails and numbers which will, well, I'll put in the show notes. And certainly the FBI want to hear from anybody who has had contact with him. And it is hard to build a profile of him uh, for law enforcement, or so they tell us, because he was a loner. But I suspect that they had many run-ins with him. I suspect there's a lot of intelligence that sits behind the scenes of reckless behaviour, of flouting rules and regulations, and that actually local intelligence says these are two... Well, we can certainly say that Wilma Sr., Alan Wade Wilma Sr., is a very dangerous individual who died alone. And I also just want to say that, you know, he died in 2017 in his Northern Neck home, so that was six years ago, but no one found him. And four weeks went by and it's a delivery truck guy who spotted that the front door was open and reported what had gone in there and reported that there was a dead body in there and that DNA was taken to positively identify the body and also to determine, they did a full autopsy to determine cause of death. But the fact that he was on his own, died alone and no one said, where is he? Well, that tells me he was a loner and he didn't have people who were close to him. And I would imagine certain family members probably do hold the key in this case, probably do have information about his behaviour or certain ex-partners that could be really helpful to law enforcement to piece together the timeline. And I would imagine that fear is a huge part of not saying anything, as I often see in cases. So I would say to anybody, if you did have a relationship with him or did know him, please do let law enforcement know, because piecing together his timeline could really give the answers to Bill, to your family about Kathy, but to Rebecca Dowski's family and many other victims' families, actually. And, you know, it's been a long time, hasn't it, where you've been waiting for answers? Yeah, all eight families. And then these families that we haven't even met yet, but are now, we're realizing, as Kristen said, we kind of need to extend the circle out. I actually believe that if law enforcement does an effective job in the next steps in this investigation, I believe very strongly, and I think Kristen does as well, that Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. will be linked to a number of additional cases in Virginia. And by the way, I'm hearing stories that have him crossing the border into Maryland as well. So I think local, state, and Federal law enforcement need to be taking a real hard look at this man. Absolutely. Well, he had a nickname, which was Pokey, didn't he? He did. And one thing that's worth noting, by the way, he's got this very distinctive truck and this very distinctive boat. And one of the missed opportunities at the press conference was not enough emphasis on the fact that the man is only five feet, five inches tall. He's very muscular. and because he works on the water, he's an outdoorsman. 
but I'm also told he had very large hands in relation to his size. And I've said to Kristen on Mind Over Murder, I'm almost picturing Popeye the Sailor Man. I mean, he's this very oddly constructed guy with sandy blonde hair and neatly trimmed beard. Some of our followers on Mind Over Murder were saying they thought he was handsome. I'm no judge of male beauty, but one thing that I think is extremely distinctive about the man, he's five feet, five inches tall. So he is five inches smaller than the average American man and heavily strong and muscled. So he's kind of a strange looking character, I think. And hopefully people will, will remember that and remember him. Remember him and remember the truck and remember the boat, the custom built Denny Wade. It was a wooden boat, which he often lived on. And he was transient to a degree. I mean, he did spend time on the boat and at the trailer. He spent time on the York River, Gloucester County, Hampton. He had this better tree service, which would make him part of the street furniture. The 1966 Blue Dodge Fargo E.M. Raw license plate. He was, as Bill said, five foot five, 165 pounds. And the FBI put out five images of him. So we'll make sure that people see that. And 1992, he won a sharpshooting contest, an archery contest. So he's probably known in those circles for shooting, for being, you know, a good marksman, hunter. I do just wonder at which stage did he stop hunting animals and start hunting humans? Because that's really what we're talking about here. And there will be a lot of people who know much more about him in that local community. Even if he spent time on the land, he still had to get food water. He still had to interact with people. So please do, if you do know anything, please do make sure you contact um, the FBI or you can contact Virginia State Police. Virginia State Police have an email, questions at vsp.virginia.gov. And you can email tip.fbi.gov. And, you know, just to say, I do think a lot of the jurisdiction issues have played in here. So I'm glad to see that at least at the presser, there was join up. And that was one positive thing that they did place emphasis on interagency working. And I do feel, you know, the FBI did want to do more just from what I found out. They did want to do more, but they were kept very much on the periphery of things, which, you know, you do have to depend on local intelligence and local communities and local police when you are a national or a federal agency it was always the challenge at New Scotland Yard when you were working national cases. But there were some individuals who I felt, certainly Special Agent Wells, who's now unfortunately no longer with us, didn't he pass in 2022? It sounds like he did go on the record, you know, to make sure because he, in his gut, I believe he thought it was Alan Wade Wilmer Sr., and that for whatever reason, uh, the lie detector's test by one of his colleagues, that was the thing that seemed to eliminate him, but he was not convinced. And I just wonder what a difference that would have made had they had put him under surveillance and had arrested and charged him and convicted him then, because it would have meant that numerous other victims would still be alive today. And that's how serious this is. I always say serial perpetrators, they are preventable. We have to share intelligence and information and take male violence towards women seriously when they report peeping and obscene phone calls, stalking. These are gateway offences to much more serious crimes, even though stalking is terrifying when it happens. But I do wonder how long maybe Mary Harding was under surveillance for and being stalked for by the perpetrator. Because what I do know about predatory stalkers is they do spend time, and that's part of the enjoyment of watching the people who are their targets. It's all part of the excitement. And I have to put it in that way because they are the opportunities to identify them before they do something terrible. So a prolific and serial and predatory stalker, rapist and serial killer, Alan Wade Wilmer Sr. was, we know that, potentially his brother was acting in a, in a similar way and really people need to come forward and share information about them and hopefully give answers to you, Bill, and, and to the other families. So it's, it's progress, but I hope that all of the cases can be finally closed. 
if the FBI and if Virginia State Police do their job. And that means putting resources into this to deal with all the information that comes forward, right? That's what we're looking for. Excellent. Anything you both want to add before we wrap? Oh, I could go on for days. But <laughs> I think we've done pretty well. It has only been a week since the big presser. And it feels, I don't know if Bill feels the same way. I feel like I haven't had a chance to take a deep breath in a week, just based on everything that has happened, whether it is the media coverage, the tips from people trying to keep up awareness on social media. But, you know, we can't thank our our podcast colleagues and partners like you, Laura, for helping us out and getting all of the information out there and helping keep this case in the spotlight. We really appreciate it. Always. And my listeners are absolutely on your side in this and anything that they can do to help. So I'll include the links to your podcast and your Facebook page and anything else that you want me to include in the show notes, I will do. So thank you both so much for talking with me. We've talked multiple times and we continue to talk off from recording as well. But, you know, you've been tremendous advocates. And if we don't have advocates doing this work, I do worry about cases not just being cold, but being frozen and nothing ever happening. And you've both been tremendous in keeping the cases, multiple cases alive. So I'm ensuring that people know about them. And I will continue to help you in that. And hopefully when we talk again, there'll be more positive updates. We hope that too. Thank you so much, Laura. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for your time. I know you're both exhausted and we are recorded on what's meant to be a holiday where people are off here in America. But for some of us, we're still working. And, you know, I appreciate your time and value you both very much as as friends and colleagues and fellow advocates. And for my listeners, always remember to be curious, ask questions and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.